You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Jean Chatsky, welcome to Her Money. So glad to have all of you along for the ride. And so I, I don't know what kind of weather you're having in wherever you are when you're listening to this podcast, but outside in New York, it is really humid. And I wandered many, many, many blocks this morning because my daughter lost her wallet and her phone wasn't working and she's living in the city for the summer. And I had to help. I had to just show up and buy her breakfast and help. So I've been feeling all day long like I've been a melty mess. And yet our guest, Anne Choquette, shows up here to the studio looking so dewy and beautiful. And did you have your makeup done this morning? No way. But dewy is a very nice way to say what's happening today in New York City. It is steamy. But let's just say that like Hot outside, having hot topics. Having hot topics, exactly. <laughs> we are going to have a badass discussion oh, today. Yes. A badass babe discussion. So Anne Choquette, my friend Anne Choquette is here. She is a millennial expert. You may know her because she was the editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine for many years. She's been on the Today Show, on Oprah, on E! News. She was a judge on America's Next Top Model. But she is here because she's got an amazing new book. It's called The Big Life, Embrace the Mess, Work Your Side Hustle, Find a monumental relationship and become the badass babe you were meant to be. I love a good subtitle. Like, this is just a really good subtitle. Yes. And you know what? You never stop becoming the badass babe you were meant to be. This is not just for women who are at the beginning of their lives. This is a mission to keep everybody young and hungry and ambitious and excited about their own possibilities in the world. I, I feel like I got more badass with each decade, each 10-year birthday. Like, I got a little more badass at 30, but really more badass at 40 and substantially more at 50. Because you own your lane and you can feel confident in your abilities and and some of those anxieties that you had when you're just starting out, where will I go? How will I start? What will I do? Those go away. You get new anxieties. You do. You do. (laughs) A whole new host of anxieties. But what I have actually found is that very that my life now at 45 is very similar to the way it was at 25. You know, there are certain things like I do not live in a one-room apartment with one sink anymore. I have moved beyond. That was me at 25. That is not me now. Um, for 10 years, I brushed my teeth standing next to the stove. But this, like, hunger to achieve and succeed that I had when I was 25 and to put points on the board, it's the same feeling I have now. It doesn't go away. I mean, I think if you're ambitious, it doesn't ever really leave you. And I hope that as I hit the next, you know, 10-year birthday, which 
thank goodness, is quite a while from now, it still doesn't leave. Like, I like that part of life. The good news is, is that this generation of young women, millennial women, are more ambitious and laser-focused on career and ambition and success in a way that I've never seen. Well, you say that we should all be more millennials. Yes. So what? why? <laughs> and Because sometimes you read a lot of stuff about millennials, and we've got a lot of millennials who are listeners, but they are not always treated very well by the press. You know, so often I'll be talking to senior executives about this book that I wrote, you know, it's a guide for millennial women to help them own their power. To write, It's a book about how they're changing what it means to be powerful and successful in the world for everyone. And they'll say, "Ugh, millennials, how much do you hate millennials? And before I can say, wait, I think they're game-changing rock star pioneers, they will tell me, lazy, entitled, disloyal. And, you know, the truth is that they are so ambitious but not ambitious in the same way that we were. They don't want to sit still and wait to climb a ladder. They don't want to go up, up, up in a straight line. Well, can we also just say that the working world has not really been fair to them in the same way it was, quote unquote, fair to earlier generations? I mean, disloyal doesn't work anymore when nobody is giving you benefits and nobody is giving you substantial raises each year. Like, disloyal only works when the company is loyal to you. 100%. This is a generation that was raised with the recession, right? They were just coming into their own as the recession happened. The financial rug was pulled out under the feet of their parents. College wasn't a sure thing. Jobs were scarce. They had no choice but to start their own businesses, to start to find their own path in the world, right? They And to hustle, to have a job, to have a side hustle, to network. And I could see it from where I was sitting at 17 that after years having been editor-in-chief of that magazine, all of a sudden in one year, the floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. And I started getting email after email, Facebook message after Facebook message, (laughs) from young women saying, how do I get started in business? What do I have to do now? How can I start – how can I get an internship in high school and get a – start a job when I'm in college? And I also, in that same year, got asked to give maybe half a dozen speeches or more about getting started in the world. And that hadn't happened, right? We had been, we had sort of been lulled into this sort of very lovely Lauren Conrad, the Hills version of the way things should be, affluence. And it just seemed easy, right? right? Everything seemed really easy. But suddenly, young women had to get super mobilized. And so that has made them very ambitious. They see work differently, move up, move around, cover a lot of ground. Above all else, they want freedom, right? This freedom from the office, freedom from the old rules, freedom from FaceTime meetings, right? They want to work when they want, where they want, how they want. Is that what having a big life means, having that freedom? Or is it more all-encompassing than that? Well, I think freedom is an important piece of it. But the big life is a life of meaning on your own terms, right? That this is not about following a ladder. It's not about having it all, right? It feels like such a dated idea, this idea of it all. This Like I've never met anybody who had it all who was really happy about it all. (laughs) (laughs) And But it's this idea that you... They don't even want to be necessarily at the top, right? That's not even what the ambition means. This is not um, this is not ladder climbing. This is not leaning in. They're like, you lean into me. Thank you very much. They, this is about crafting a life on your own terms. So if you are out and addressing 
an audience of millennials or maybe an audience of employers who want to understand millennials or even parents who want to understand their millennial kids. I mean, what's the best way to work with millennials? <laughs> um, I get this question a lot. I mean, to be honest, you have to let them you have to let them dictate a lot of the rules, right? Of how and when and what. Well, and the and the but the things that motivate them are much different. They care about money, but not particularly about being well paid. I ask women this all the time. Um, you know, what would what does it mean? And they say, Well, I just want to be paid what I'm worth. Well, I don't know what that means, right? How do you know what you're worth? And I think a lot of that actually comes from the recession and this fear that the money isn't there and I'll just take whatever it is. Thank you very much. But what's more important to them than money is meaning, right? That if you can make your company meaningful to them or meaningful to someone else, that's going to keep your millennial employees motivated and, frankly, loyal, right? If they feel like they're on a mission, that's really important. You just said, and, and I keep hearing it play back in my head, so I want to go back to it for a second. When we when you mentioned lean in, and you said their feeling is you lean into me. Thank you very much. What does that mean? This idea that you should have to follow the rules of the company, right? That you that there's that there's a path laid out for you, and that you will get sit still, do a good job, get promoted, get promoted, get promoted. That idea has disappeared. If they're going to work for a company, they want the company to come to them and to accommodate their schedule and to accommodate their needs and and to think about their whole life, right? Not just it's not like you go to work and you're grinded out in some windowless office for eight hours and you're set free on the other side and suddenly your real life begins. That it's all work all the time and all life all the time. Well, and the big consulting companies are doing this, right? I mean, I know I, I spoke with the folks at Deloitte, and they've got a whole new process in place where they listen to what everybody's needs are on their team, and they accommodate whether it's Tuesday night baseball games or Thursday morning yoga or whatever, yes. whatever it, or I only want to travel three days a week. And it's not to say that the junior employees don't have a lot to learn, right? That they're that they're ready to be the boss, even though they think very often they're ready to be the boss. And there's this huge gulf of misunderstanding that I've found that happens about nine months into the job. Um, some young woman will get a job and she'll think to herself, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to do this. I feel so lucky that they've even chosen me. How could I possibly do this job, right? All that imposter syndrome. I don't. I'm not down for imposter syndrome. We can talk about that later. Um, but all of that stuff that comes up. And then she gets to the job. After nine months, she's mastered it, right? She knows how to. She knows where everything is. She knows how to make it work. Her bosses think she's doing a great job. She's like, great. I'm going to go ask for a raise and a promotion. So she marches into her boss's office after nine months and says, I'm, I'm doing a great job. I'm, I love it here. I'm ready for a raise and a promotion. And the boss says, it's not in the strategic plan. It's not in the budget. Go sit back at your desk and pipe down and wait for the review process. And that nine months, that and she goes away defeated, right, feeling like, I'm moving on. Forget this. I'm never going anywhere. And that that disconnect is the real crux of the problem because she thinks this nine months is everything. She's figured out how to master this job. The boss is like, your nine months is a blip in my career. And so that kind of understanding between millennials and their Gen X or boomer bosses, I think is a really important thing to focus on. So what do you tell the millennials? Because I, I have to say it's all resonating with me. I have a number of young women in my life that I 
have just grown up with and that I mentor, and a lot of them are at that nine-month mark right now and are frustrated. Yeah. So what do you say to them to get them over it? And it's the worst, right? They think, I could do my boss's job. They do think that. (laughs) They do. Maybe they could, to be honest. Maybe they could. (laughs) But they still have a lot to learn. One of the most important things I tell young women is that in your first or second or even third job, the most important thing that you're learning is how work works, right? That That the key to success is not... Yes, it's mastering your skills, but it's very often, how does a meeting get run? Who walks in first? Who sits where? How does your boss let you know that you're doing a great job? How does she let you know when you're not doing a great job, right? Who, Who walks around the office and checks in to see who everybody else is doing or who finds a locked door as soon as they can and closes the door behind them? That All of that texture of being at work is really the key to success. But when young women say, I could do my boss's job and I'm never going anywhere and I'm not moving up, I tell them the truth is it's probably true, right? I've said it a million times. It's not in the budget. It's not in the strategic plan. I don't even have time to have this conversation right now. It's not my job to figure out how you are going to move ahead in the world. I want you to move ahead, but go figure it out on your own and you tell me. What I tell young women is to leave that conversation with an action plan. Okay, great. I will sit still and wait until it's review period. What do you want to see by the time the review happens in order to make this raise and this promotion really materialize? And then work on it. Get a list of goals, right? Don't just walk away frustrated. But also, I tell them, don't sit still forever, right? If you're being asked to sit still for six months, even a year, I think that's reasonable. But if it doesn't happen, I think you should go. I don't think we're, I think we've moved beyond this idea that it's a bad thing to move around. I think there's real, value in seeing where else the market is for your talents. Absolutely. And real value in knowing what the market is for your talents. And we're going to come back to money and millennials in just a second. But let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And the reason that Fidelity gets behind this show is that it understands how important it is to have conversations like this because we all deserve to have the big life. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. And so take a moment, visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find many more conversations like this one with Ann Choquette. You'll find information about how to manage your money during all of these challenging times because whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career or just getting going these are skills you need. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. One last thing. If you are looking for a fun take on self-help, might we suggest buy the book. Each episode follows hosts Kristen Meinzer and Jolenta Greenberg as they live by different self-help books for two whole weeks to see which ones actually work. Along the way, they take advice from psychics, neat freaks, and compulsive coupon cutters so you don't have to. Subscribe to Buy the Book on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So we are talking with Ansho Ket, author of The Big Life. Okay, money. When it comes to a millennial woman, what is on her mind as far as money and concerns about money? I mean, I know as you wrote this book, you had kitchen table conversations with dozens and dozens and dozens of women. What did you hear from them on this? So money is freedom. Like, let's be honest. That's how you make 
the big life happen. That's how you get to have a life on your own terms. So you have to get paid. And there is real value in having a job that just pays the bills. And very often, young women will say, oh, but my job is so boring. It's so soul-sucking. And that's when I tell them they need a side hustle. Because your side hustle is not about making money. Your job is to pay the bills. Your side hustle pays you in self-respect. And so whatever it is that you're not getting from your job, the community, sisterhood, a chance to be in charge, um, that's what your side hustle needs to be. But I actually did a series of dinners around money because I wanted to know why are we so weird about money? Why can't, why aren't young women saying, I want to be well paid? There was a, I was up late one night turning on the TV and Risky Business came on, which was like 1982, right? Yeah. And it's this moment, you know, Tom Cruise at the very beginning of the movie says to his friends, um, don't we want to do anything meaningful with our life or do we all just want to make money? And every, all of his friends said, money, money, money. They all, you know, 1982, all young people <laughs> wanted to go out and make money. But I don't hear that. I hear meaning, right? I want to do something meaningful. I want to make my mark on the world. I've got a new vision for how things should go. And yet you can't make your new vision happen unless you have money or access to money or things or money is happening. It's actually a problem, I think, this real disconnect of not just getting paid what you're worth or getting paid equally, which is a huge It's a, a huge, huge problem in and of itself. I actually think millennial women in particular are going to get us closer to equal pay. I think so, too. I mean, and if you look at the curve of people coming out of college, not not in certain professions, but in a lot of them, we are getting closer when it comes to millennial women. They are, this idea of transparency, which to you and I probably feels like TMI, right, is, um, but particularly salary transparency, that young women are happy to share their salary with each other over drinks. Oh my gosh. I Yeah. I It's not too much TMI to me. In fact, we had your friend Meredith Rollins on the show and she said... I sat down with the woman who was taking my job and I said, this is how much you have to ask for. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Amazing. It's a big, I think it's a big shift. Somebody asked me a couple of years ago and I was like, oh, how can you ask me how much money I made? And I, and I really now wish that I had, um, this is one of the ways in which I think we should all be more millennial is this level of transparency, particularly salary transparency. So what mistakes do you see young women making when it comes to their finances. I mean, and, and that idea that a job that just pays the bills is not worth anything, I think is is a big mistake. I mean, I remember coming out of college, a friend of mine said to me when I was complaining about how lousy my job was one day, well, that's why they have to pay you. You know, <laughs> that's why they call it work, because you've got to show up and do it in order to earn the money. You know, I think that the mistake that young women are making is that they're not asking for those raises or that conversation that I described where they get shot down, inevitably get shot down by their bosses. They think that means the end. But I think there's real value in just having asked, in having raised your hand and saying, I think I'm worth more. I think I deserve more. And it's not. And yes, you're telling that to your boss, um, but you're also telling it to yourself. Right. You're saying, wait a minute, I think I really need to make more. I know that I'm worth more. Um, I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. I've been so surprised. You mentioned relationships um, when you were talking about the big life. Um, and I've been so surprised that um, the conversation about men and women actually isn't very little about money. This idea of like who pays for dates, this idea has like 
disappeared. Um, and I think that that's, that has really been surprising that, um, particularly when young women are thinking about partnership, Mm -hmm. that that's what they want. They want partnership. They want, they want to be equal partners. Where do they put that partnership as they're looking at their life? Like, does partnership, is it more important than a career? Is it just as important as a career? Is it, how intent are they? Because as I look at the young women who are in my life, I see them getting married later. I see them not really caring as much about having a partner until they are older than I was when I began to care about those things. I mean, there are many, many differences. Many of them don't seem to care about driving, which boggles my mind because I love to drive. But let's go back to relationships for a second. I think that it feels just as urgent as your career, that it feels like an important piece of your big life, that it's not something that young women are dismissing, that maybe it's not the main focus of their attention, that they're perfectly happy to just date and hook up, and that feels okay. But I'll tell you this. I did a series of dinners around my dining room table with women, dozens and dozens of women, and I always tried to steer the conversation towards sex. And inevitably, they steered it back to relationships and then career. I would try to drive the conversation towards hooking up, towards sex, towards modern day gender politics, what's happening in the world. And we would talk about it for about five seconds even. <laughs> and and then it would very quickly go to partnership, relationships. How do we build a relationship? How do I find a partner who honors my ambition? That was the question that came up again and again. And then we were back to talking about success and what are the keys to success and how can I be more successful? So for my entire career, sex has been easier to talk about than money. But do you think that money is now easier to talk about than sex? I think that they're having a lot of sex. I know they're having a lot of sex. And they're not pressed about how does it work or what do I need to know? And if they are, they're having those conversations in their group chats, right? That it's, it's hey, how did last night go and what's happening? And um, But what the big questions on their mind are how can I be successful? How can I build a life that feels big and how can I make my mark? That's the driver. That's the new driver for young women. Well, I love it. The book is The Big Life. Anne Choquette, please come back. I told you when we started this that our interviews usually go 20 minutes. I feel like I've been talking much longer than that, but I could keep talking. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. So Kelly is with me in the studio. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm thinking, you know, I know I kept referencing all my birthdays and how old I was, but I was actually thinking as I was listening to Anne that I could be a millennial because I had that conversation with my boss when I had been at work for nine months. I mean, there was nobody who had less patience about getting promoted (laughs) than I did. See, and I think so too. So oftentimes you send me to events where I am the only millennial in the room. It's a lot of Gen Xers and boomers who have done research on millennials. And then so they start talking about the millennial research and they all look at me kind of nervously as if I'm the elephant in the room. And I get it. I get where the stereotypes come from. I do. But I don't think like one size fits all, right? Like there are going to be the stereotypes of every generation within the generations, and then there are going to be the ones that defy it. So everything Anne said really hit close to home for me as a millennial, but also as a female millennial, like she really... She got it. She listened. She listened. She really, she got really it. listened. Yeah. Great, great book. Fantastic. So, okay. 
Here we go. What kind of questions do we have today? Our first question is from Nathan, who wrote us on behalf of him and his fiance. He writes, Dear Jean, when I first started dating my girlfriend, her money became a staple of our relationship. Aw, that's know. nice. It's so nice. We used it to start discussions about difficult topics like saving and credit scores. We come from different financial backgrounds. One of us received a lot of family help with student loans and medical bills, while the other wasn't lucky enough to have those resources. While the amount of student loans is high, the majority of them qualify for PSLF, which is Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Mm-hmm. We do a good job managing our finances now with saving and paying down debt, but my girlfriend is now my fiance. There is still a large gap between our credit scores and credit histories. We really don't know the right steps to go about combining our finances. We are in our late 20s and early 30s with the goal of owning a house in a few years. I know our marriage might affect things like minimum student loan payments, credit scores, etc. Are there any good resources to find out how this process of combining finances actually works? Secondly, as there are so many credit agencies, lawyers, and counselors out there, which is the best type of service to help guide us through this process? Thank you for your podcast and how it's helped us thus far. And thank you for any further help you can provide. Well, I love that Nathan is writing to us about all of these things. So thank you, Nathan. Congratulations, right, on getting married. That sounds really great. There were so many questions buried in your question that I want to just parse this a little bit or unpack it. I keep hearing people use the word unpack, and I I like that. So here we go. First of all, when you talk about merging your money, you're talking in a couple of ways. We're talking legally as well as sort of tactically. And legally, once you get married, a lot, especially as it pertains to student loan repayment, depends on how you file your taxes, whether you file married filing jointly or married filing separately. If you were on, and I know we're talking about public student loan forgiveness, I will get there in a second, but if you were on an income-based repayment program with one of your student loans, that income is the income on your tax return. So if you're filing separately, it's just your income. But if you're filing jointly, that could mess you up potentially with an income-based repayment program. And a big shout out to the folks at Student Loan Hero because we double-checked this information just to make sure that it was correct. The other thing is with your public service loan forgiveness program, it really should not matter except that you may be able to pay off your loans faster than they would be forgiven if you have more income coming into the family. So all of these things are things to keep in mind as you merge your finances. It may be easiest to just file married filing separately until the public service loan forgiveness program is done. And for anybody who's sitting there wondering what this is, it's essentially a program that the federal government offers on federal loans, whereby if you are in some sort of a helping profession, like you're a doctor or you work for a not-for-profit, you can get your loans wiped away after 120 on-time payments, essentially 10 years of on-time payments 
in an income-based repayment program, which is a lot of information. I would direct you to Student Loan Hero for more of this. They've written extensively about it. As far as combining your money in other ways, I like the idea, and I've said this many times, of some financial autonomy of yours, mine, and ours accounts so that you can do a little bit of what you want to do with the money. She can do a little bit of what she wants to do with the money. And you've got the house account that takes care of those expenses that you incur together and your savings because you want to be putting money away every single month to get to the goal of that house. One last thing, and then I will shut up because <laughs> Kelly is itching to ask me another question. <laughs> One last thing, and that's just don't let the urge to blow through your student loans get in the way of other goals like saving for the house. It's okay to just pay them off on schedule and get through them that way because the interest rates are generally quite low. So. Congratulations. Great question. And we're going to send you a book, yeah, we Nathan. Should. We're going to send you a book for your wedding. Maybe um, money rules? Maybe money rules. I don't know. I'm going to surprise you. We're going to send you a book, so we'll get your address. Okay. Next question. Thank you, Nathan. Our next question is from Julie. She writes, I am maxing out, or will by year end, all my retirement accounts, including my HSA. I also have three plus months in my emergency savings fund. Side note, I do have significant student loans that are less than 5% interest, so all is not picture perfect in my financial picture. Anyway, my question is, if I have an emergency fund that I could use for unexpected medical expenses up to the deductible, would I be safe investing all of my HSA? The HSA is the best long-term account because of that triple tax benefit, but I also don't want to shoot myself in the foot. What should I do? As long as that HSA money is there for the long run, you can invest it. I'm fine with that because basically you're saying you've got additional money on the side. If you needed to go into the HSA and pull some money out, you would sell those particular investments perhaps that you'd put into something where they were either flat or up a little bit rather than taking a loss, waiting for those to come back. I think you're fine, and I am hearing more and more about people using the money in their health savings account as a supplemental retirement account because they've got money to pay for health care on the side. So we're good with that. Great question, Julie. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And I just want to remind everybody, send us your questions. We love them. Reach us on Twitter, on Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. It is time for our weekly Thrive segment. We're talking about the estrogen advantage when it comes to investing. We've got some new research out of Caltech, Wharton, other universities that suggests that higher level of testosterone actually raises the likelihood of making snap judgments. It also makes people less likely to mentally check their work. So here's how this experiment went down. Two groups of men were either given testosterone gel or placebos, then asked questions about their ability to reflect on certain pools of facts. And the group of men that got the real stuff were quicker to make snap decisions and to think that they were definitely right. They also, and this is important, they also got 20% fewer questions correct than the group that got the placebo. So the overarching message from this study 
it could apply directly to investing because overconfidence, and that's what you get from this stuff, it can lead to higher levels of trading and additional trading costs. The research also says that lower testosterone levels might explain why women trade less frequently overall and are more likely to stick with our investment decisions for the long haul. And as a result, as we know and as we say all the time, Kelly's doing a happy dance, women often outperform men in the markets. The moral of the story, everybody should think twice before trading and historically trying to time the markets yourself rarely works, just like making a snap judgment is also rarely the right financial move. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Anne Showcat of The Big Life for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We, of course, want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next time when we will be talking with financial advisor Alice Finn, author of the new book, Smart Women Love Money. Yes, we do, but not as much as we love our listeners. We'll talk soon. 